course, the way we use the word underground is hidden, where we can put a sign out there and welcome people from the street. They have had to uh, meet off location uh, because the government has disallowed meeting that doesn't conform to their uh, COVID regulations. But now, a uh, separate though related issue, I think, uh, the government in Canada has passed a bill that disallows uh, preaching, teaching, counseling that, that would seek to change someone's mind or change someone's uh, view or disposition with regard to gender or sexuality. So this morning, Andrew DiBartolo, for example, among many others, is going to preach on this same topic from the Bible illegally because the bill has been passed. Um, and I want to get to that in a minute, but I just kind of want to orient you to, to where we are. Uh, sometimes sort of bumping along in our lives, not really aware of, of the, the collapsing culture around us. I mean, this country has gone from sort of a nominal agreement with Christian values to a disagreement where it's like, stay in your church and let us have our lane to let's kill the church. That's where we are now. It's not enough to let us have our lane. We don't want you to have your lane anymore. Your lane just existing intrudes on my lane. And we can't be quiet about it. I want to preach today's message with, with as much grace and mercy as I can muster. I am as deserving of hell as anybody else you need to understand. It is not that one particular kind of sin is um, uh, more, um, I, I don't know, condemning uh, than every other kind of sin. There are grades of perverseness. There are grades of wrath. But however, whatever your track record is, whatever my track record is, we, we are under wrath outside of Christ. I, I want to make that clear. If we are not clear with our culture, we cannot get people out from under that wrath if we tell them there's no wrath. There's no wrath for that. That's unloving. So our Canadian pastors today are, are like Molin Lake. Come and get it. Come and get it. Arrest me. And that's not what I'm doing this morning because this can go on the internet. This can go out there and we're not there yet. I don't think we're very far away. Let's take a few minutes before we get into Scripture this morning and just kind of put this out in front of us. I've, I've put portions of the uh, Bill C-4, just so you can see what, what's happening in Canada. Our neighbors. Here's what it says in the summary of the bill. This enactment amends the criminal code to, among other things, create the following offenses. A, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy. B, doing anything for the purpose of removing a child from Canada with the intention that the child undergo conversion therapy outside of Canada. We're still going to get you if you do it somewhere else. C, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. You don't do it, but you promoted it. You reference the guy. You go to that church. Who knows how they define that? D, receiving a financial or other material benefit from the provision of conversion therapy. In the preamble, 
On the next slide here, the preamble says, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, among other things, it is based on and propagates myths. What your pastor teaches you about sexuality is a lie, it's a myth, and we're going to outlaw it. Myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, that means your gender is the gender you, you know, matches your sex, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. What you're going to see in the irony here is, is how they prefer everything but cisgender. But you're not allowed to prefer. You're not allowed to prefer cisgender over the other ones. And whereas, in light of all those harms that were just listed, it is important to discourage and denounce the provision of conversion therapy in order to protect the human dignity and equality of all the Canadians. Let's be clear. If someone comes to a Canadian pastor and says, I want conversion therapy, and the person gives the conversion therapy, that's illegal. There's nothing in here about the person asking for conversion therapy, signing up for conversion therapy, paying for it, paying for it, just indicts you further according to the previous slide we just saw. This isn't about people's rights or desires. So we talked a lot about conversion therapy. What is conversion therapy? I mean, it's not a biblical term. It's not a term we tend to use. Uh, well, they go ahead and define it. The next slide, in sections 320.102 to 320.104, conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to do any of the following. A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender. You can change your gender identity to whatever you want, as long as it's not cisgender. As long as it's not what the Bible says. Change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress a person's non-cisgender uh, gender identity. Or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So conversion therapy is anybody who has a view or behavior or is confused about their view or behavior or identity with regard to gender or sexuality uh, that doesn't conform to what the Bible explains is God's standard and is the norm. Anyone who wants to change that uh, can go to anybody else for it and the person who offers counsel or teaching or a sermon or anything along those lines that seeks to change them is conversion therapy, and that is what is outlawed. What happens if you do it? Next slide. Everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy, I didn't cause them to undergo it. They came to me and asked for it. Hyphen, you provided it. I don't care if they asked you for it, wanted it, signed the thing. You provided it. You're indicted. 
is A, guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. B, guilty of an offense punishable on summary conviction. Now, church, the longer we stay quiet, the longer we confuse loving neighbor with being quiet as regard to their, their views, culture is going to get louder. Lawmakers are going to go, let's just throw this into law. No one's going to vote it down. There's only like four Christians in our community. You know, John MacArthur is almost dead. Who else you got? Let's push this thing through. That Christians are quiet or don't exist. Or they just don't want trouble. That's how you get there. I want us to love our neighbors. It is not loving to our neighbors to be quiet about this. What about here? What about the United States? How far are we from this? In this article by Joe Carter on the Gospel Coalition website on January 8th, he writes about a city council in West Lafayette, Indiana, that's considering an ordinance that would make it illegal for unlicensed counselors to counsel minors on human sexuality in a way that conflicts with LGBT orthodoxy. For example, if a teenager goes to a Christian counseling center about unwanted same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, it would be breaking the law to give them answers based on biblical sexual ethics. The penalty for violating the ban on so-called conversion therapy is a fine of $1,000 per day. This is Indiana. The proposed ordinance defines conversion therapy as any practices or treatments that seek to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity, including efforts to change gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual or romantic attractions or feelings towards, uh, toward individuals of the same gender. The law makes an exception, though, for counseling that affirms a minor's embrace of homosexuality or gender identity. They're at least, exp they're at least saying, we're you know, there's the hypocrisy right there, the inconsistency. You're fine if you do that. If someone comes up to the counselor and says, I'm heterosexual, but I really want to be homosexual, can you help me? You can do that all day long. You'll be champion, they'll probably make a statue. It's the other way that is the offense. According to the ordinance, conversion therapy shall not include counseling that provides assistance to a person undergoing gender transition or counseling that provides acceptance, support, and understanding of a person or facilitates a person's coping, social support, and identity exploration and development, including sexual orientation, neutral interventions to prevent or address unlawful conduct or unsafe sexual practices as long as such counseling does not seek to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. And then finally on this article, Joe Carter writes that counseling, as defined by this proposal in Indiana, refers to techniques, quote, techniques used to help individuals learn how to solve problems and make decisions related to personal growth, vocational family, and other interpersonal concerns. I actually think that's a pretty good definition of counseling. I think that's what sermons are supposed to do. I think that's what small groups are supposed to do in church. But an unlicensed person is defined as any person not licensed or governed by the Indiana Code 25111 or the state of Indiana's professional licensing agency who provides counseling and or psychotherapy. The ordinance makes no exception for pastors or other religious counselors. 
Uh, Joe Carter goes on in the article to say, I don't think this bill's going to go anywhere because they, what they should have done is gone after the licensed folk first, see where that goes, and then maybe we could talk about unlicensed, but it's unconstitutional to restrict it to unlicensed folks, and so he doesn't think it's going anywhere, but the point of the article is it was proposed. There's a group of people that, that put this together that think, hey, this country is ready for this. Let's outlaw this. Imagine preaching through Romans and skipping chapter 1 because you don't want to get thrown in jail. The government is pushing into, I don't have slides prepared for this, but I'm just thinking of it as, as government is pushing into the homes. You have the right to raise your kids unless you're going to tell your kid what gender they are. So the kids can go to school in the UK as young as four years old. Tell the teacher, I want to change my gender, but my parents don't like it. That's okay. We won't tell your parents. We're not obligated to tell your parents by law. Four years old. Young children having their bodies mutilated. Some parents virtue signaling how cool and hip they are, how with the times they are, by approving the mutilation of their kid's body. Posting it all over Facebook. Folks, we want to be loving, right? But that's disgusting. That's child abuse. That's not cool. That's hatred. Here's a simple point that isn't so simple anymore. Years ago, 10 years ago, when I first got here to CFC, saying this would have just been like, why, why are we? But our view and expression of sexuality must conform to God's design. That is the biblical truth. Whatever your view, whatever your expression, whatever you're feeling inside, whatever you're confused about, thinking about, our view and expression of sexuality must conform to God's design. Where do we find God's design? Closing our eyes and meditating? It's revealed in Scripture. So we're going to go to a couple passages. The first couple a little more quickly, and then we'll camp out on a third one for the rest of our time. But the first one... Uh, you don't have to turn there. We're going to put it up on the screen, which is Genesis 1. should be familiar to many of you. God created us male and female. Where do we get that from? Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And even though we are also in a culture where you can't say man, you can't say Latino, Latinx is the replacement now because everything is so, you can't gender anything. But man in general... God says, let us make man after our likeness. It's not that woman isn't made in his likeness. Man is covering the entire category of humanity. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then you see verse 27 in the middle there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then it goes back to the mandate in verse 26. God created man to have rule over the earth. In verse 28, he says, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. An integral to man's sub subduing the earth and filling the earth and ruling this planet and caring for this planet is man being made in God's image, and integral to that image is male and female. 
I don't think it's a mistake that, ironically, as the world seeks to cure the earth of carbons with, their, with windmills and solar panels or whatever they're trying to scratch and claw to t- try to take care of this earth that's being destroyed, the fabric of society itself is being destroyed and they can't solve either one. We don't need a Green New Deal. We need, we need to get back to what society is supposed to look like and when we do that, we can take care of the things we're supposed to take care of. Sandwiched right there in the middle is this identity that is male and female. And as we erase that identity, as we blur the lines between the two, as we make those swappable, we are destroying creation. Now, when we think about male and female, uh, Adam and Eve, in this uh, first instance, this covenant between them, this marriage between them, it isn't just sexual, it is gendered. Now, it wasn't very long ago where sex and gender weren't really, I mean, what do you mean about a difference? Well, now it's like, oh, that's my sex, but that's not my gender. But biblically, God created male and female, and it isn't just about sexuality or sexual expression. It is gendered. I want to go to one verse. You don't have to turn there. We'll put this up on the screen. It's one verse. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Now, here at CFC, we've preached through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We haven't hit Deuteronomy yet, maybe one day soon. But Deuteronomy 22 starts listing off various laws. Don't do this, do that. When this happens, do this other thing. And he hits some, uh, Moses hits some different uh, items here. And when he gets to verse 5, he doesn't expand, he doesn't explain, uh, he, he doesn't unpack it for multiple verses. It's one verse. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, every law listed in Deuteronomy does not call it an abomination. For example, just in this passage, uh, in the next verse, uh, Moses says, you know, when you find a bird's nest and you've got little birds in there, you can take the young birds, don't kill the mother bird. You know, let them continue to have eggs and it'll go well with you. You'll have life. He doesn't call killing the mother bird an abomination. He just says, don't do that because when you bless creation and when you care for creation, I sustain you. Back to Genesis 1. Another example is in verse 8 when he says, hey, you've got a house with that top and uh, you all are hanging out having a barbecue on top and somebody is having a drink that you serve them and takes a step back and, oops, falls off the roof of your house. Well, their blood is on your head because you should have built something so they don't fall off the roof. doesn't call that an abomination. He just says if you don't want to be guilty for that person, just take a few minutes one, one morning. I almost said one Saturday. They wouldn't have done that. Some other day of the week. And build a parapet around the roof so that doesn't happen. Now, if somebody jumps over that on purpose, well, that blood guilt's not on your head. But you need to provide something reasonable. It's reasonable to take a couple minutes and salt your sidewalk so someone doesn't slip and crack their head. That, that's a reasonable expectation. But he doesn't call that an abomination. Here, he says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. That thing that they did wasn't an abomination. That person, look at it, is an abomination. Now, following through on this is not possible. It's not possible if we just blur lines between genders, 
make everything swappable. Now, it's interesting that it doesn't unpack it and say, here's what a woman's garment is. Here's how long the, the thing should be. Here's what the measurements are. Take it to your tailor and your seamstress and make sure that they do it to this specification. There's a timelessness to this passage where God is concerned about the distinction between male and female, and that distinction is supposed to be borne out in the way we wear our clothes, in the way we comport ourselves. I think we can put in here, you know, haircuts and things like that. Now, generation to generation, these things might change. Some of y'all might go home after the sermon and go, my son will not wear the color pink. You know, interestingly, when I was reading Eric Larson's uh, book on the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, he describes, uh, you know, early 1900s, World War I. He describes the dapper men of the age, the wealthy that were boarding the ship. And they all wore pink. All of them. Pink was the jam in the early 1900s. Pink has made a comeback. There's soft pinks, hot pinks, and whatever. Can a guy wear an earring? Well, I mean, when I was a kid, you could, but it had to be in one ear, not the other ear. Both ears, I don't know. Wrong ear? Mm. Those things change, right? And we can debate those things, but you can't even have the debate if it's just, there's no such thing as gender. You can be any gender you want. Not that there's no such thing as gender, but there's any number of them. And from day to day, you can make the switch. No, God is asking us to check what our kids are wearing. And that a guy shouldn't shop in the women's section. That is not traditional white male Eurocentric tradition. That's Bible. That's Genesis 1 that we're trying to preserve so we can talk at length. I'm not going to go into it now because I would if I was only preaching this verse. But what, how do we go about thinking about our closet? And I think there's ways that we can go about thinking about that. What, the point I'm trying to score is gender is distinct. Gender is a thing that God is trying to protect. And gender matches sexuality because Je- Deuteronomy 22 is coming on the heels of passages like Genesis 1. But it's not only about gender, it's also about sexuality. And for that, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. Now we're in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for starters. Because I want you to see something before we go to chapter 6, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, before we go to chapter 6, just look at how he addresses the letter. He's writing to a church in Corinth. If you ever thought, well, who are the Corinthians? It's a word we throw around. What is that? It's the people who had church in Corinth. That's it. So he's addressing his letter to a group of Christians, to a church. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle, a messenger, a sent one of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Verse 2, here's who the letter is to. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in that greeting, we see what we're doing here today. We are standing in solidarity with others who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who do it. But we are Christian Fellowship Church in Itasca. We're a particular congregation. And here's how he describes them. They are a church at the beginning of verse 2. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called 
And they're called to be saints, which means holy ones. Saint and sanctification, I mean, it's, it's really pointing at God making us holy. And he doesn't say who will be saints. He doesn't say on your way to being saints. He doesn't say some of you are saints. I'm not sure about others of you. He doesn't say you might be sanctified. I hope that one day you'll be sanctified. I'm writing a letter to Christians who meet in Corinth who right now, as I write this letter before it's even sent, I know that if you're in Christ, you are sanctified. You are saints. You are holy. Now, as you read the rest of the letter, you realize these are not perfect people. You read this letter and... If you had any thoughts about CFC sometimes requiring you to work some things out because everyone's not perfect, that's going to be every church. When you look at a church like Corinth, you might feel relieved that you're a part of Christian Fellowship Church. The things they fight over, eating so much of communion that some people don't get it, that's unimaginable here. And we just do the little cracker with a the cup. They're, they're having meals. And eating so much of the meal, some people can't have communion. Okay. They are suing one another. Things like that. And that Paul has a lot of rebukes for them. They're not perfect, but he calls them saints. He says, you're a church. I don't, to me, that's encouraging. And I think it's helpful for us to understand. He gives them their identity before he gives them marching orders. Marching orders don't make sense without the identity piece. Here's who I'm writing to. Now let's talk. You're a saint, right? Let's talk holiness. You're called, right? Let's, let's talk about what you're called to. When he gets to chapter 6, when he gets to chapter 6, you can turn there. He just finished talking about that, what I just brought up, the lawsuits among believers. He's like, y'all should not be suing one another. That, that's for the world to do. Okay? You guys are at each other's throats. You all are uh, allowing things to happen in the church, like sexual immorality in, in, in chapter 5. But it's not just about sexual immorality. It's about things like lawsuits and, and just pushing one another out of the way and trying to stomp on one another to get your way. And then he says in verse 9, he explains that this is not your identity. This is not what you're supposed to be. And so he lists sins that are identities that are not the Christian. In verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Here are the kind of people that aren't in the kingdom, that don't receive the kingdom. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice sexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let's pause there. I want, this is going to be our main little chunk, our main paragraph this morning. He's exhorting them to live a certain way, and the reason... He gives them to live that certain way. One of the reasons he gives them is you all are not of the group that doesn't inherit the kingdom. You're of the group that does inherit the kingdom. And people who do inherit the kingdom act a certain way. You don't earn the kingdom that way. You're brought in the kingdom and then made that way, see? You're not this group. You're this group. You don't live like that. You live like this. Your destination speaks to what God has done in your life to make you something other than the people that are in this group over here that live a different way. Now, I could see somebody saying, well, how come, you know, you're having a, a uh, I think John MacArthur called today Conversion Sunday, just to kind of 
put it in the eye of, of those who are against conversion therapy. And some might say, well, why do you have a sermon on sexual morality? You just talked about, for instance, homosexuality in Romans 1. Why are you doing it again? Why a whole Sunday connected to it? Well, because culture still views swindling as wrong. You can still get arrested for a DUI, drunkards. Reviling is still viewed as not cool. Even homosexuals don't like adultery, though it's rampant in the community. I shared those stats back in our Leviticus series. It's, it's certain sins that are celebrated. That's why. I don't have a, a particular axe to grind on the, on the issue otherwise. But it's what the, the, the society is trying to indoctrinate into our, uh, our minds, our kids. I'm not aware of a flag that when you see the flag waving, you know that that church is here for revilers. Welcome. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone is welcome here. Here's our flag. Here's our multicolored flag to know that if you revile people, you're a swindler, you steal from people, greedy, you are welcome here. No, that's not what they're saying. Every time you turn on a Netflix show, the token character, the token character that normalizes a behavior, if it's the greedy person, the reviler person, the swindler person, that's the villain still today at least. That's not what they're championing. They're championing this particular issue. Why do we talk about it? Because of that. That's why. Now, when you look at this list, he says, do not be deceived. Isn't that interesting? You can get deceived on these things, folks. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, men who practice homosexuality, etc., will not inherit the kingdom of God. They do not inherit the kingdom of God. I'll just break this down real quick. Some of these terms, we won't do it with all the terms, but the ones that are pertinent for today's subject. Sexually immoral, the word behind that word, of course, this is originally written in Koine Greek, not today's Greek, but a version of it, an ancient version of it. Sexually immoral translates the word pornoi, from which we get porneia, pornography, Pornography, graphe is like graffiti, writing, so writing about sexual immorality. That's what pornography is, or displaying pictures about it. There's a general category that kind of covers everything. Everything that's not in the lane of what God said is sexually immoral is sexually immoral. So he starts with a broad category. Then he moves to another broad category of idolatry. Then he moves to adultery. Uh, the word behind that is moikoi, and no one really argues about this word. It means if you are in a covenant marriage and you engage in sexual activity outside of that covenant marriage, that's adultery. Okay. Now, sexual immorality is broader than that because you could be single and still be sexually immoral, but you can't be single and be an adulterer. That belongs to marriage. And then the phrase, nor men who practice homosexuality. Some of you have different translations. The ESV I don't know, I, don't, I might want to say disappointingly is, is glossing over two different words that are used there. Uh, it's basically combining two words that Paul has in a separate list. So you see this list that says neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, and there's two more nors there that ESV is kind of combining into one for men who practice sexuality. And the two words are malakoi and arsenokoitai. Has been a long time. No one speaks this language anymore anyway. Um, 
Malakoi, it means soft, uh, maybe effeminate. This is definitely in the lane of sexual, uh, uh, the, the lane of sexuality, not just whether somebody can do push-ups or not. That's not what it means by soft. And some scholars think that it refers to the passive partner in the act. I hate to be that brutal, but if they're going to tell your kid what gender to be at four years old, y'all can start talking to your kids about this stuff. Malakoi is the soft, maybe passive partner in the act. And the next word is a compound of male and intercourse. Now, some people debate that Paul is talking about specifically about prostitution or something like that. But the words don't bear that out. There's nothing here about being paid. There's nothing here about being solicited. There's nothing here about the age of either person. And some will argue that first passive person is the, is the kid because pederastry was uh, popular in these times. The first term is the kid, and that's what's disallowed. I was like, well, what about the second dude? Male intercourse. So these are actually two different words that are summed up here, men who practice homosexuality. And they are getting specific beyond just the broad category they had of sexual immorality. And I want to be clear. Sexual immorality in the broad sense is wrong. Any, any iteration of it. I think what Paul is doing is, what are the specific ways we might be deceived on this? Okay? And he names some of those specific ways. Adultery is not cool. If you made a covenant with your, your wife, you know, speaking to men, husbands made a covenant with their wives, that is the only appropriate lane for you to express your, your sexuality. Otherwise, it's adultery. But then he gets specific with homosexuality, and it's there. One commentator, and I think this is an important point, one commentator stated, that this list is, is really about behavior. It's not about attitudes or characteristics. Now, I know probably up until this point, for most of you, I've been preaching to the choir, but let me give you a heads up on what's going on within churches and within so-called evangelicalism is to separate the action from the behavior. I am a homosexual Christian, but I don't do homosexuality. There's nothing to fix here. I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem. When this commentator, a famous commentator, says this, this is about behavior, not about, quote, attitude or characteristic, that can't be right. Ironically, to back up his argument, he says, well, look at the rest of the list. It's all behaviors. Is it? Is it? When he talks about idolater, is that only when I create the idol, kneel in front of the idol, or can I have an idol in my heart? Can I idolize something in my heart? As long as it's interior, it's okay. It's the behavior that's wrong. See, that doesn't make sense. What is the idolatry behavior? Kneeling, making a candle, is it saying a prayer? What if all the things that I'm supposed to do for God, I don't do because I idolize myself, and it just shows up in not doing stuff? Where's the behavior there? When it says adulterer, adulterer, do you have to commit a physical act of adultery to be an adulterer? Who has something to say about that? The famous Sermon on the Mount. He, he makes it clean. He, plain. He says, you, you think that the Old Testament law that talked about adultery was only talking about the physical act? Don't be a fool. Don't be dumb. Or as Paul would say, don't be deceived. That does happen in your heart. That does happen in your heart. 
For those of you who have given yourself a pass, I know it's not just men, I know it's women too, but you give yourself a pass because at least you've kept it to the confines of your computer. That's not a pass, man. Stop. That is not a pass. Because the thing that's happening inside your heart is what makes you guilty. Action flows from the interior thing that's happening inside your heart. This is about identity, not just action. Imagine giving that pass to the thief. Well, as long as you didn't physically steal something. Well, is covetousness okay then? Is envy, rampant envy okay? What is the 10th commandment? Don't covet. He didn't say just don't steal. It's the thing that leads you to stealing, which is the covetousness. So when Paul says the thief, he goes beyond that and says the greedy. Now, how is that in action? What's what's really hard about, about this is when we only pay attention to the obvious outward actions, we don't address interior things. And when we don't address interior things, we're missing the point. If you only ever talk to your kids about the thing that they did, the thing they didn't do, and you never talk to your kids about the heart, the attitude in which they did that thing, or that caused them to do that or not do that other thing, you're not shepherding your kids well. And so if you look at this list, it's not a a clear distinction between behavior and what happens in the heart. Some of these can only happen in the heart, like greed. Some of them happen in the heart all the time, like idolatry and adultery. And this is a dangerous, dangerous distinction to play with. This is why we are not AA. We don't stand around and tell each other, Hi, my name is Lucas O'Neill. I've been sober for 45 years, but I'm an alcoholic. On the Christian view, that makes no sense. I want to make this point really clear. This list is not a comprehensive list. Paul doesn't list all the sins. This letter would be ridiculously long. It's already long, all the things that he has to cover. He's low on parchment, probably. Remember the other letter where he's asking dude for parchments? Like, there's no staples. But he's taking a few minutes to use his precious ink, use his precious parchment to list out some of these representative sins, not all the sins, and not all of these sins are sexual sins. Other sins are listed elsewhere. Even in this letter, he just finished covering one, lawsuits among believers. That's not in this list, but it's still a sin. So these lists aren't to be like, oh, my, list, my, my thing isn't on here. Oh, I'm okay. You're not, we're not okay. Plus, this list exposes such broad categories like sexual immorality in general or idolatry in general or greed. In, have I never been greedy? Have I never taken or wanted more than I should have had? A list like this, as limited as, as it is, leaves us all guilty. And so what I don't want anyone hearing in this is, for us to say, look, people that are confused on their gender, they, they're a category of bad people. We just need to shun them. We just need to not talk to them. That's the opposite of the point of this passage. Go talk to them. You have a message for them, even when it's outlawed. Even when you might get in trouble for giving them that message, that's your job. You are called, 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. 1, 1 through 3. But we know that no one, no one can inherit the kingdom of God on their own work. So this list isn't pointing out particular people to leave us in a place where we're haughty and we're looking at ourselves. We're better than all these people. It's the opposite. This list covers everything. This list is an introductory list that covers everything. And we know that because he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. He's not writing this so they could arrogantly say, I'm so glad I'm not that. They're behaving in certain ways that are unbecoming. 
And he's saying it's unbecoming because that is not you. Your identity has changed. Such were some of you, verse 11, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What hope is there for any one of us who's condemned in a list like this? Whatever the sin is, whether it's about homosexuality, whether it's about sexuality in general, whether it's about greed, whether it's about some form of idolatry, what hope is there? The hope that we have is getting washed and getting sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's not conversion therapy. That's gospel conversion. It's not a 12-step program. It's a personal change that is wrought out by the cross of Jesus Christ. And the same power that raises him from the dead, he talks about in the next few verses, the same power that changes your life. Verse 14. So if God has the power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead, he has the power to make you different than you are. And you are different. And therefore I can tell you, stop Stop doing those things. That is not a citizen of the kingdom. Christ's atonement secures a new identity for Christ. We can't give up on conversion. Conversion is Christianity. And I do want to make this point clear as well. One of the very peculiar things about Christianity itself, different even from, let's say, Islam, is that you cannot force conversion. In Islam, you can. If the person, if you put the gun to their head and they bow down and they're like, yes, I say the words. Okay, you're in. And you're good. And they'll say that. I'm not saying every Muslim wants to do that. But I'm saying in the religion, you can see how they can work that out. You can, you can just get society to conform, even by force, let's say. Because it's, a, it's an exterior mode. Do your five prayers a day on the carpet facing the right. There's things you can do to be in the right place. But Christianity, how many times have I made it clear in this church from all these different passages, all these different books, you can come to church, read your Bible, talk the talk, clean up your language, no more swearing, don't watch rated R movies anymore, whatever you want to do to clean up your life and be completely lost. Because Christianity is not an exterior thing. And because of that fact, you cannot make your kids Christian. You cannot make your spouse Christian. It's, a, it's an interior decision that follows from God granting a gift called faith. But we are about conversion. We are not about coercion because coercion is impossible. We don't teach brainwashing techniques here. But if somebody comes here to me, to one of you, and says, hey, I'm struggling with this identity, sexual identity thing, what hope is there? The last thing we want to do is like, well, we don't, we don't touch that. You know, we're just, you do you. No, you not do you. <laughs> if I did me, I'd be dead. I don't stand in judgment over somebody else because I struggle with something different on this list than someone else struggles, but I'm definitely not a loving neighbor or a preacher or a saint if I don't tell them about the uh, endangerment to inheriting the kingdom of God because of their pre-Christ identity. We bring the message of Jesus Christ to offer to others what is offered to the Corinthians and what the Corinthians experience at the top of chapter 1, verse 1. To be a church, to be sanctified, made holy. How? In Christ Jesus. So that all the wrath that we deserve is put on Christ. Christ bears it on the cross. He takes death for us so that we don't have to be condemned under that death sentence anymore. And then he's raised from the dead, as Paul continues in chapter 6, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
so that he can bring us into new life. New life. Not just new behaviors, but a new identity that affects our behaviors. So we call upon Christ. We call upon Christ who makes us holy. He puts us into a different position, into a different identity. So our view and expression of sexuality must conform to God's design. And here's the way to finish that sentence, okay? Our view and expression of sexuality must conform to God's design, and we can turn to Christ for the necessary change. We turn to Christ for the change that's necessary to live into God's design. Really quickly, I think as a church we want to make sure we remain clear on this, and we can't leave pastors alone to stand on this issue. American pastors don't want to leave our Canadian pastors hanging, but our American Christians don't want to leave Canadian Christians hanging either. We need to be this and not just leave it to professional ministers or Christians with YouTube channels. And we need to communicate in love. We don't want to just throw Bible verses at people. What is the goal? To win an argument? To get people to vote your party? No. The goal is to use Jesus' lenses to see people stuck in darkness, whatever their sin, whatever their issue, whatever, however this list hits them, stuck in darkness, and they need hope. They need light. And we come alongside them going, I was in that list too. Such were some of us, right? I was there too, but I experienced this change, this conversion, and it's not a therapy. It's a message. It's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But it is not loving our neighbor to leave them in dysphoria or confusion or in abomination. That's not loving. We seek to rescue. We seek to help. And the lifeline that we offer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should offer it boldly, clearly, and lovingly. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you give us in your word, guidance to navigate difficult issues. We pray that you would give us a, a winsomeness in our approach, uh, but that we wouldn't confuse being winsome, gentle, and loving with being uh, quiet, uh, with being unable to have a, a tough conversation, being unwilling to lose a friend uh, over an issue. Uh, help us to not prize our comfort uh, in this society, our ability to walk around and go places and have fun conversations without ever having to be awkward, without ever having to have a debate or an argument or whatever, have, being misunderstood. Help us to be a little more courageous than that. We pray that um, we would use your courage and not, not a human kind of courage that is just steely and loves arguments. Uh, we want to love people. And we want them to see change that is only available in Jesus Christ. Not change from a sexuality or a gender, but change from depravity and lostness in general. And Father, we pray that we would offer this hope to the world that is uh, beyond what psychoanalysis can provide, beyond what any STEP program can provide, real, genuine transformation and conformity to our designer, Jesus Christ. We close with the song, Father, to honor you. We pray that as we do that, you would put that charge uh, in our step that we need. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.